Shalom. <laughs> there you are. Well, it's good to be back. And uh, I think I had to uh, postpone about three or four times or something like that. And um, <clears throat> my wife and I have been pretty strict, but we're vaccinated now. We're going crazy. So, you know. <laughs> you can hug me. I don't care. <laughs> and, uh, but the Lord, is, Lord has been really good. There, there was a book that came out a number of years ago, uh, written by a friend of mine, Michael Vlock. Uh, and uh, the name of the book was, Has the Church Replaced Israel? Anybody ever see that book? I mean, it, it's, it, it, you can get it on Amazon, or Chosen People sells it, I think. But Has the Church Replaced Israel? Uh, but you don't have to read the book. I could actually just give you the answer to the question. You know, The answer is no. <laughs> no. And... So, when you look at the Bible, uh, you need to look at the Bible in a way that understands the role of Israel as ongoing. Ongoing. Um, Quite a miracle, uh, Israel uh, celebrated its 73rd birthday. Now, it's actually quite a bit older. Uh, But its modern version, uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, uh, is Israel's birthday, and we celebrated it last week, and with great festivity. And <clears throat> so we do believe that God has his hand on Israel. We do believe um, that God brought the Jewish people back to the land of promise, and that when Christians see that, we can be assured that as God keeps his promises to Israel, he keeps them to us. And that makes our future bright, pandemic, no pandemic, Everything in this life is temporary. There's only one thing that's permanent, and that's our hope, right? And we look forward to that. So I'm going to lead you on a journey this morning to talk about two things. One, Israel's role in the plan of God. And number two, the difference between taking Scripture literally and not taking Scripture literally, and how that impacts our understanding, not only of the Bible, but of contemporary events. So, you ready for the journey? All right, good. So, let's begin with something easy. So, uh, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Right before the beginning of what's known as the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus sat down and told the future to his disciples. And, uh, by the way, uh, in, <clears throat> in, the, in the version of the Greek that the King James uh, comes from, the Greek word for, uh, not virus, but for plague, is in, in that. If you're in another Bible other than the old King James, you won't see that there. But you will see it in Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel passage to Matthew uh, 24, a little bit different. And so people are always asking and saying, is the virus, are plagues part of God's end time plans? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the answer is yes. Do I think, now then people always press me and say, do you think that then this is a sure sign of the end times? And I would say, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is this the final one? Well, we won't know till after. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the best way to interpret prophecy, after it happens. It's safer, you don't, nobody throws rocks at you, you know. And I want to get invited back. So if I tell you even the date Jesus is coming back, which I used to know. No, I'm just kidding. And he doesn't come back, I'm dead. So I'm not going to do that. But plagues, uh, definitely part of the uh, end time scheme uh, in the, as recorded in the Bible. And by the way, it's true within the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. We have seen a greater openness among ultra-Orthodox Jews in the last year than we've seen in the last probably in my almost 50 years of ministry. And we've seen some come to faith, which I, I didn't know if I would live long enough to see one. And we've seen a few. And, uh, and we've really focused and prayed about this. And there's all sorts of stuff in the Orthodox Jewish community and, uh, you know, you just can't read the Yiddish newspapers coming out in Lakewood, you know. But if you could, uh, you could see that this was a big topic of discussion. And they say over 100 ultra-Orthodox Jewish leaders, rabbis, died so far in the last uh, 15 months or 14 months. And it's actually transformed some of religious Judaism in Israel and in the United States. Uh, because we lost a lot of leaders. And, uh, and they knew that plagues were part of the end times, but the Orthodox Jewish people are very interesting. Uh, there's a lot to, for Christians to learn from ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. But they said, look, we just trust God for everything. I think it was a little naive and impractical, and unfortunately a lot of people died. Uh, but there is a, a, a tremendous uh, trust in God among ultra-religious Jewish people. In fact, in uh, Romans 10, Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So don't ever think that the, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish people do not have a zeal for God. They do. Paul recognized it. Jesus recognized it. Unless your righteousness is above the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember that? So there's no doubt that that's true. But a uh, little... Uh, Pastor Lance is walking around with a Greek New Testament. I'm very, you know, very impressed, really. Uh, and, and, but that Greek word, full knowledge, is epinosis. Epi meaning full, gnosis meaning knowledge. And so the ultra-Orthodox Jewish people that you know, meet, work for, work with, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish people do have an understanding of God but not a full understanding of God. If they had a full understanding of God, then they'd believe in Jesus. And uh, so it's been a very traumatic time within the uh, uh, Jewish community uh, for the last year. But it's not the first traumatic time Jewish people have had. Um, we've had a history of trauma, haven't we? Then why have we survived? You know, you think about it. And how did a nation, how was it almost virtually born in a day in 19, May 14, 1948? You know, how, how, do you, how do you explain it? Where are the Hittites? Where are the Canaanites? Where are the Jebusites? Where, where are all the sites? I mean, with everything against the Jewish people, how do we survive? Um, the answer is because there is a God who chose the Jewish people, and has a plan and purpose for the Jewish people. And when you take the Bible literally, you understand it.
So that's where we're going. So Matthew chapter uh, 23, verse 37. Jesus is at the end of his rope, but shows, <clears throat> shows what he's made of. Boy, I don't know about you, but first time I picked up the New Testament set, since I had never studied the New Testament in Hebrew school. That's a joke. And, but I remember reading it for the first time, and I thought to myself, I remember, like it was yesterday, but I was 19 years old, and I remember, I said, if anybody was like God, it would be him. Because he mixes everything about God. And I was raised a more Orthodox Jew, so I, I did go to Hebrew school every day, four days a week, for six years, had a bar mitzvah. Pretty religious. And so I did read the Bible. And it's almost everything about my understanding of God, his justice, his compassion, his, his power, yet his grace. I mean, all of these seemingly disparate elements to a person were so beautifully expressed in the person of Jesus. And we see that in Matthew 23 as well. So he's at the end of his rope because of Jewish unbelief and because the rejection of the Jewish leaders of his messiahship. And so really what he should have been doing now is what I would have done, which is just zapping the whole lot of them, really. But he wasn't me. And fortunately for me, he wasn't me or I wouldn't be here. So in verse 37, we read, O Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Wow, what a statement of compassion. And he's the judge. He could have just judged the Jewish leaders, but instead of judging the Jewish leaders, he expresses his longing for the Jewish leaders to follow him as Messiah. So even though there's been a long history of Jewish rejection of God's ways and God's plan, and nobody knows that better than Jewish people, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her, how I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So instead of, so to speak, just wanting to uh, bring judgment against his own kinsmen according to the flesh, he, he talks about his longing to gather them, to protect them as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. And then he goes on in verse 38. It's very interesting. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house is being left to you desolate. You almost have to be Jewish to understand this one. And actually, even more, a lot of secular Jews would not understand it. Uh, the word house, uh, in Greek, oikos, in Hebrew, bait, that word house was a word that was used all throughout Jewish literature, all throughout the Talmud, all throughout Jewish commentaries, and whenever you saw the ha- word house, it referred to the temple. The temple. And so he wasn't speaking about the home of the Pharisees and scribes. He was talking about the temple. And he didn't have to use any other word because the Jewish leaders at that time would know what he was talking about, just like I know what he's talking about. So your house is being left to you desolate. Here's the point. 
God did give the land to the Jewish people. He promised in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, verses 1 through 3, an unconditional covenant, no performance mandate on the part of the Jewish people, no time parameters on how long it lasts. It is an unconditional, unwavering, everlasting covenant that God made whereby he promised that the Jewish people would never be destroyed. He promised that they would have a land. He promised that they would have a relationship with the God who called Abram. And then he promised that they would have a mission to the world. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And until that job was finished, then the Jewish people could never be wiped out or God's plan would never come to pass. So God protects his people, God protects his plan. So what is this? This is the only singular judgment upon the generation of Jewish people that rejected Jesus. And this was happening in the early 30s, and 40 years later, in 70 AD, this prophecy on the part of Jesus, would come to pass and the temple would be destroyed. But it doesn't say that the Jewish people will be destroyed and totally cut off forever because of their disobedience or rejection of Yeshua, Jesus. It says your temple will be destroyed. Serious, terrible. To this day, it's why it's called the Wailing Wall, Jewish people sit in front of the wall. The, the, it's actually the outer western wall. That's all that's left, supposedly, to the original temple. Of course, if you go around the side, you'll see the temple steps, which are older. But traditionally, it's viewed as the oldest part of the wall, uh, part of the temple that's left. And why is it called the Wailing Wall? Because we wail for the destruction of the temple, believing that one day God would rebuild the temple. So the temple was important. It was, the, it was the central institution of Judaism. It's where the priest did what the priest was supposed to do, which was to sacrifice animals shedding blood for the atonement and forgiveness of Jewish people. What could be more important? And Jesus was saying, your house will be destroyed because you rejected me. Terrible, harsh judgment. But hear me out. Because of what God has said earlier, and we'll look at it in just a moment, and we take it literally, we understand that God's promises and God's covenants cannot be broken. And because of that, this judgment is serious, but not fatal. Not fatal. Look at the next verse. For, Jesus says, I say to you, from now on you will not see me. You won't see me. That's his first hint that he's not hanging around. You will not see me until you say, And look at your Bibles carefully. I love it that all of you are looking at your Bibles. 
That's why I love this church. It's just great. <laughs> Until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. You see that in your Bible? Did you bring the wrong version? Until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I have said those words over and over and over again in my delightful ministry career because I've had the blessing of marrying a lot of people. Most recently, my daughter. A couple years ago, that was great. But blessed are you who comes, blessed is he or you who comes in the name of the Lord. The rabbi says that before the groom walks forward to take his bride and walk her under the canopy, the chuppah, where they will enter into covenant marriage. You get the image? So who is the bride? Israel is one bride. The church is another bride. Can someone have two brides? Well, God can, you know. So Israel is the bride. By the way, he's not really getting married. God is not even corporeal, okay? Corporeal. So we're not talking, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's to help us understand spiritual truths. And so God promised these Jewish leaders who were rejecting him that if one day they would change their mind, repent, and cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, thereby recognizing Jesus as the true bridegroom of Israel, then he will return, reign as king, fulfill the Davidic covenant, and establish Jerusalem and Israel as the head and not the tail. So, Everything will change when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The nice thing about this is actually it's not a suggestion at all. Actually, it's a prophecy. You will not see me, which means you will see me. And then that little Greek particle, which is one of my favorite little words in the entire New Testament, until... So it's not a suggestion, it's not an option. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, thereby recognizing Jesus the Messiah as the true bridegroom of Israel. So when will that happen? Well, that's the tricky part. I'm I'm really careful about telling you exactly when. Because it could be the death of me. But there are a lot of hints in the Bible as to when this might happen. In fact, I think things are lining up. I think we're, I know we always say that we're one day closer to the coming of the Lord. You know, that's a safe personal prophecy to say that, you know. (laughs) But I really believe that things are lining up. Now let's look at one more New Testament passage, then we'll jump over uh, to the uh, first half the Old Testament. So open up your Bibles to Acts 3.19. 
This is the end of Peter's message. Peter never, never missed a good chance to street preach. This was a street, he was street preaching in the temple after the blind man gave him a great illustration and motivation to preach. Very serious sermon if you read the sermon. And then Peter comes to the end of the sermon. And verse 19 says, repent. Repent. That term in the Greek means change your mind. Repent. And then what's very interesting, and this is how you know Peter is Jewish, he says, repent therefore and return. Now that's one of the most